difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky and Scott Tobias. Keith has been temporarily derezzed due to a minor programming glitch here, but he says he still has some quarters, so he'll podcast next time with whoever wins today's conversation. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're going into the mysterious high-tech world of computers to see what video games are like from the inside. Scott, you're my player two in this conversation. Tell us about this week's pairing. Yes. <laughs> Steven Spielberg's new action-adventure movie, Ready Player One, mostly takes place inside a virtual world called The Oasis, where anyone with an online connection and a VR helmet can live out their fantasies and escape the ugliness of a deteriorating real world. But the designer of the Oasis has died, and a former intern at his company is trying to take over the virtual world and commercialize it, turning it from a public playground into a private cash cow. A group of young players are on a quest to find the hidden keys to the kingdom and win the rights to control the Oasis, and that quest looks an awful lot like playing a giant, free-form, puzzle-solving video game. All of which reminded us a lot of the 1982 Disney movie Tron, which also has a greedy corporate overlord seizing control of the virtual world of video games from its original designer, and a scrappy group of players fighting back from inside the computer. In Tron, though, the takeover is already complete, and the people on the quest are mostly computer programs fighting for freedom on behalf of the programmers who designed them. Tron looks very different from Ready Player One, but both use cutting-edge special effects for their respective eras, and both turned video gaming into both a fantasy adventure and a meta-narrative about adventure fantasies. On part one of this week's podcast, we'll look at Tron's still-relevant concerns about privacy and transparency. We'll consider its strange legacy as a film about video games made just before the huge video games crash, and we'll talk about how it's a special effects film made about computers during a time when computer special effects were close to unheard of. In part two, we'll bring in Ready Player One and consider how both of these stories open up the world of video games to make them more like the immersive fantasies that gamers have while playing video games. There's a lot to say about how both films reflect their era's concerns about computers and game worlds, and how geek classics like Tron were a major part of the inspiration for Ready Player One in the first place. Along the way, we'll take a look at some of the controversies about Ready Player One, both the original best-selling novel it adapts and the film itself. You guys are up for a nice, robust conversation about Gamergate, right? No, 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 no. The computer, an extension of the human intellect. The NCOM 511, center of the most calculating intelligence on Earth. Programmed by Master Control to survive by all means. Soon, the ultimate tool will become the ultimate enemy. Hey, 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 it's the big Master Control program everybody's been talking about. Kevin Flynn, computer genius. Taken prisoner and held captive within the digital world of the computer itself.
trapped inside an electronic arena where love and escape do not compute. Like so many of the innovative films we like to focus on here at The Next Picture Show, Tron was a miraculous movie that almost didn't happen. It's easy enough to think of it as a 1980s Disney movie, the product of a well-heeled corporation cranking out family-friendly adventures. But Tron didn't originate with Disney, and it might actually have been a very different movie, if not for, of all things, the 1980 American boycott of the Olympics. Writer-director Steven Lisberger was the head of his own animation studio, Lisberger Films, which at the end of the 1970s was at work on a traditional cell-animated project called Animal Olympics. It was later cut together into a feature film, but it was originally conceived as a series of short vignettes about animals competing in Olympic sports, complete with the usual Olympics framing, talking about the athletes' backgrounds and interests, records, and so on. If you picture the ballet dancing hippos and crocodiles from Fantasia and replace them with a high diver otter, a cross-country runner puma, a high jumper frog, you more or less get the idea. The segments were meant to play on NBC between segments of the 1980 Olympics, but when the United States led a massive boycott of the Games to protest the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, NBC's coverage was canceled, and Lisberger and company were left without the funds that they were expecting to finance their next project, which was Tron. Having already invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in concept arts, treatments, storyboards, sample reels, and more, they were forced to seek funding from the major studios. According to some reports, Warner Brothers, Columbia, and MGM all passed before the project landed at Disney. From a technical standpoint, Tron cinematographer Bruce Logan has said Disney was the perfect studio to make the movie. In part, they were used to time-consuming, labor-intensive projects because of their animation work. That was relevant because when Tron was made, computer-generated animation was practically unheard of in cinema, apart from a few minutes in Westworld. Tron called for 15 full minutes of CGI, more than any other feature had ever tackled before, and it had to be rendered one frame at a time at a rate of hours per frame. Lisberger says that to get the movie made within the necessary time frame, they had to take over other companies' computer banks at night when they weren't in use, including one company that didn't do animation. They used computers to generate medical imagery, but they granted Lisberger access to their computers just because they liked the sound of his project. Disney was also used to working on projects one frame and one layer at a time, and they had the specialized equipment for the kind of frame-by-frame compositing that made Tron possible. Much of the film takes place inside a computer world, which was created through a process called backlit animation. Lisberger had tested that process out for some special effects sequences in Animal Olympics, but the Tron shoot used it extensively and in live action. For the scenes taking place inside the computer, Lisberger and Logan shot in black and white, rendered the footage into high-contrast positive and negative matte frames, then composited those frames and reshot them onto color film while vividly colored light was being projected through the frames. The results still look pretty spectacular today, in part because it's such an uncommon process that we haven't really gotten used to it visually. It's a tremendously work-intensive process as well. It sometimes involved a dozen or more layers being shot together in order to get the full gamut of visual detail. But the work paid off in a film that still doesn't really look like anything else from its era. Tron feels very much of its era narratively as well. Made at the height of the early 1980s video game boom, it stars Jeff Bridges as Flynn, a hotshot computer programmer who designed a bunch of popular video games, but had them stolen by a scheming executive named Ed Dillinger. David Warner plays Dillinger and also plays his evil creation, the Master Control Program, an artificial intelligence that's slowly trying to take over the world. 
For added resonance, Warner also plays SARC, a subsidiary program that carries out the master control program's bidding within the computer world. In Lisberger's imagining of the computer domain, all programs carry a bit of their programmer spirits, so they look like glowing people played by the same actors who play their users in the conventionally shot real-world segments. When Flynn goes after the master control program in that real world, the AI uses an experimental laser to disintegrate him and reintegrate him as a program inside the system. But Flynn resists with the help of a defiant security program named Tron, programmed by Flynn's buddy Alan and played by 1980s movie mainstay Bruce Boxleitner. There are a lot of contemporary concerns in Tron, mostly about loss of agency and control in a world where scheming computers can steal our secrets, withhold or divulge information, and take over our lives in ways we can't see. The solution, oddly enough, is to play video games really, really well. Technically, Tron is about literally beating computers at their own games by getting inside them and controlling them on a physical level where human ingenuity and reflexes are equal to their computing power. In the same way, it sometimes feels like Lisberger beat Disney at its own game by crawling inside the studio and making something that feels like a Disney movie in the sense that it's upbeat and accessible and a heroic story about good and evil. But at the same time, Tron is a deeply strange film about piety and religion, about a god reduced to the state of his own creations and trying to get back to the world he came from. It's also about duty and honor to their creators, our creators. We're going to dig into Tron's strange religious and metaphysical mentality after this break. Greetings. The Master Control Program has chosen you to serve your system on the game grid. Those of you who continue to profess a belief in the users will receive the standard, substandard training which will result in your eventual elimination. Those of you who renounce this superstitious and hysterical belief will be eligible to join the warrior elite of the MCP. You will each receive an identity disc. Everything you do or learn will be imprinted on this disc. If you lose your disc or fail to follow commands, you will be subject to immediate de-resolution. That will be all. All right, guys. Are you fans of Tron? For those of you who'd seen it before, like, how did this play for you this time around? I'm going to defer to Scott, who, when this uh, pairing came up, I believe his reaction was, Tron, 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 Tron! <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I was so enthusiastic. But but I think the film is flawed. <laughs> what? <laughs> You'll be surprised to learn that, that Tron is flawed. And what, it, and it, Shocked. And Shocked I, and I am that there are what, flaws going on in this establishment. <laughs> and what surprises me is that it's a Disney film that really is not as accessible as you might expect it to be. It is a film that I feel when it begins, you already think that you've missed critical scenes <laughs> that were going to set up what you were seeing. I was totally disoriented from the start of the film, and I've seen the film a couple of times before. So so that part of it is interesting. But it's also fascinating to see, you know, if you really think about it in context, when this movie came out, what the state of technology was at the time, what the film was trying to do. I mean, it is really fascinating. <laughs> and I'm, I'm always interested, too, in how the culture is responding to technology, how the degree of fear versus the degree of excitement and enthusiasm. And this film kind of mixes both of those things up. So um, 
yeah, very much of its time, but in a, in a way that's fascinating to me. While, while again acknowledging that the film is not the smoothest running operation, narratively speaking. Yeah, that that beginning is weird, but I think it's really daring. I mean, especially if you compare it to Ready Player One, which begins with roughly 37 minutes of exposition (laughs) explaining what's going on. Like, Mm -hmm. Tron just starts up and just assumes that you're going to figure it out. And I I actually like it more for that. Genevieve, what did you think? This was my first time seeing Tron, but I did see Tron Legacy in the theaters (laughs) when it came out. So there's like a weird back referentiality happening here and so like maybe just because i had absorbed you know enough about this world from tron legacy like i didn't feel disoriented being mm-hmm. dropped into this world i was much more disoriented in a in a good way by the visuals which are kind of what i spent most of this movie engaging with because the story like there's a lot of sort of you know technological flimflamery happening that like makes it seem more complex than i think it actually is like mm-hmm. this is a, a very kind of straightforward quest narrative and like i feel in a lot of ways this plays more like a kid's movie than anything else. Um, We can maybe talk more about that later because I do want to kind of dwell a bit on the visuals and specifically the backlit animation, which, as you said, in the keynote, Tasha, is something we don't see very much today. And it was incredibly striking to me to watch it in this film. Like, I'd never seen it deployed at this level before. And I was really pretty enamored of just the technique and, like, the variety of ways it was used throughout the film just like kind of coming at it from an animation appreciator's standpoint, that is what I responded to most strongly in the film, more than the story or the performances, with the exception of Jeff Bridges, who is Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the rest of the movie felt a little flat, including the <laughs> computer-generated animation, which is like quite literally flat. Mm-hmm. Um, so like those scenes don't, I think, hold up nearly to the degree that the backlit animation scenes do. Well, so, well, please explain to me the difference, because I, I, I'm not uh, as much of an animation buff as the two of you. What, what are we talking about when we the talk about the glowy outline? Like, basically, anytime humans are moving in the frame, when they're black and white and they have the, oh. the colored outlines, it's the majority of what we see in the computer mainframe is backlit animation. Okay. Um, yeah, it's also used in the backgrounds, especially mm-hmm. on Sark's ship when you see uh, like screens in the back and they have that same kind of like vivid sharp glow there are points where the characters are moving around and they have that kind of characteristic uh, outline that happens when you're matting one thing onto another in you know in 80s technology Mm -hmm. and it looks very even at the time it looked kind of obvious and glaring the backlit animation is much much smoother and harder to distinguish because it's not being painted on it's not uh two things being superimposed it's actual light being shined through the negatives Hmm. uh, in order to get that effect and that's why it's so vivid and so so smooth especially in like the really fine details of their costumes sometimes you'll get little dropouts but it doesn't have like the same clumsy effect as rotoscoping for instance which there is some of in this movie Mm -hmm. or uh, like matte compositing which there is some of in this movie and you can really tell when they're using the backlit version versus a different version because the quality of it is so visually different. There's also more of a physicality to those backlit animated scenes because they're, you know, obviously the actors are physical objects, but you know, there's also pieces of set that have been actually filmed and they feel like they have more weight than the purely CGI moments such as like the light cycles. Yeah, the light cycles mm-hmm. or the the light cycle escape the when the recognizers are going after them. Like 
there's just sort of a flatness to that that I don't think you get at all in the backlit animation. You know, I I was reading a lot about Tron uh, leading up to this, and it <laughs> it took a lot of effort to get past sort of the first layer of a lot of different uh, people who talk about the special effects, talk about backlit animation. Getting into the technical details of exactly what they did was surprisingly difficult. And then beyond that, it seems like just nobody talks about the CGI, mm-hmm. like what the aesthetics were, what the plans were there. It's just kind of like, oh, you know, we did we made a lot of computer imagery. And that baffles me because to my eye, the CGI of Tron still looks good. And it must have been like specific aesthetic choices they were making in terms of of the frame rate or the color selection or something like that, because most CGI from that era looks terrible. Maybe it's just because it was designed to be so like high contrast and simple that it, we're not seeing that kind of like sampling problem mm-hmm. where as CGI gets better and better, old CGI looks worse and worse. There's also like, I think, a stylization element happening in those CGI scenes that help that feeling and like help it feel like it works because it's obviously not at the point where you're going after realism like in the way that Ready Player One is using CGI or, or, or mocap. I'm thinking specifically of the light cycle escape once they've left the grid and are like moving freely on their light cycles and mm-hmm. there's kind of this amazing shot of the light cycles wrapping around like are kind of like snaking around some cliffs you know it's, it's very like stark background of like a few different planes and then these light cycles moving through them and it's very like i said stylized and it just it looks unusual it looks interesting it doesn't look real quote-unquote real but it looks cool and it's something that can't be achieved with physical effects i think one thing that honestly hadn't occurred to me until you started describing that scene that makes it all work is one of the biggest problems with really early cgi was it, it was so hard to make it either have a realistic weight or interact with anything mm-hmm. physical. And they don't do that in Tron. The cycles don't leave the ground. The recognizers don't touch the ground. You know, they they float, mm-hmm. so they don't have to have a real or convincing physicality to them. Everything in the computer world has that kind of slick, it's supposed to be digital, it's not supposed to look entirely real. So part of that stylization, I guess, is just not trying to mimic real world things in a way that becomes difficult to do convincingly. Yeah, and just kind of the nature of the computer world it's like it's just floating in space you know it it just like kind of drops off into the distance you know there's not necessarily perception you know that you have to to deal with as much you know it just like kind of feels it's okay that it feels like things are floating because sure you're in a computer mainframe you're floating in the middle of nothing (laughs) why would anything in there and maybe that's that's ultimately what it is is they acknowledged that they were creating a world that operated by its own physics and they didn't try to mimic real world physics except for the a light beam which uh what what, what is the the simple physics that flynn says like the the uh, angle of reflection equals uh, that what is it is it the angle of well he he, he puts it very simply like a, a light beam can always be diverted which is like not really simple physics, <laughs> but yeah. but apparently it applies he's, in he's this Disney, world. They, they've Disneyfied it as much as possible. Yeah. Um, well, one thing you can say about the effects. I mean, I, I was thinking about comparables and about the video game world of Tron. I mean, the, the Lawnmower Man was not <laughs> that film did not come Your along. Your beloved until, Lawnmower Man, my beloved Lawnmower Man, which is a virtual reality film, did not come along until ten years later. And I, can we really say that's an appreciable? 
step forward. I, I, I would say it's a couple steps backwards. I would say it's a couple steps back. And then consider this as well. I mean, I I also looked up when the Atari game Adventure came out, which I which I played and which plays a, a pretty significant part in Ready Player One. Uh, that was 1980, and the, the graphics on Adventure. They're pretty crude. <laughs> uh, so so uh, Tron is seems to me quite forward-looking, quite an advancement. And uh, that can be a really tough thing to appreciate when you see it now uh, because you don't know what that context is. Like, what did video games look like? Uh, what did computer effects look like? I think if you if you really understand that, then you can gain even more of an appreciation for what Tron was able to accomplish. Yeah, I honestly, I can't imagine what it would be like to see Tron for the first time today. I imagine two eyes trained entirely on today's CGI, it would look quaint and clumsy and wouldn't have at all the the charm that I associate with it, you know, having seen it when it first came out. I have a very strong affection for this movie. And I part of that is just because every time I watch it, I kind of boggle all over again at some of the stuff that goes on in it that just seems so so undisney and so unlikely in so many ways. And one of the big things is just the the religiousness of yeah. this movie. <laughs> We we should talk about that in a little detail, but first, like, are there other things that that throw you about this film as a Disney movie that just seem unusual to you? Well, I mean, that's the big one, isn't it? This is a problem for the film all the way through, is that I wish it were simpler and clearer on almost every front because it's on to so many good ideas, and I think if they were expressed in a way that was more accessible, then it would resonate a little bit more, but that's the part that... that Are you thinking of anything specific there? I think it's hard to follow right from the start. I just don't. I don't think it's all that well told. I don't think it's a very well told story. Hmm. And uh, and I think as Genevieve was saying, this is a basic quest narrative. Um, there's a lot of you know playing games within the machine to kind of advance through it. And and I I just that felt all very much made up on the fly and and not as um, clear in terms of the goals as it could have been. It wasn't clear to me this idea of who users and what, what's the other layer? Programs and users. Programs and users and how that is delineated. Maybe I'm a, just a dunce on the whole thing, <laughs> but uh, I think all that could have been clear. And then, of course, just this weird religious cult aspect of it, which doesn't really come to the fore until the very end, I just kind of wish there were more of that. While I definitely recognize the religious aspect in the user program relationship, I don't think it's like strongly developed or telegraphed enough to like raise the level of explicit. Like within the computer world, you also have like a, a totalitarian regime, you know, mm-hmm. that in like you could put that into a religious reading or it can be something else. And like the user program thing, like also just feels like an extension of the idea of an avatar. So while acknowledging that there definitely is a religious aspect to this, particularly in the like input output junctions where the programs can talk to their users and you know there's definitely sort of a church worship aspect happening there, but they all just feel like aspects of the story. They don't feel like the story. And and again, I've only seen this once and you know mm-hmm. not a super close reading. Maybe there is more there there than I'm seeing, but it doesn't feel like fully developed enough to be super surprising to me that it's in a Disney movie. I mean, to me, the the real story is 
also a very religious story. It, it is literally about a god who comes down into the world of his own creations and takes on a form like theirs and has you know strange powers as a result and sees that there are people like struggling with their beliefs, struggling to properly worship the things that created them. But people down on this world are slowly losing their faith. So in the end, he sacrifices himself to mm-hmm. save them all. And in the process, he quote unquote dies and he goes back to the place where he is a god and a creator again. Sure. I mean, it's it's a Christian myth laid pretty thickly over the surface of this thing. Not what, thickly enough. <laughs> well, what, I, I, guess, I guess what complicates that for me is Flynn is not the only user. Like there are other users. Oh, sure. For, this is like, a polytheistic the, world. Exactly, exactly. So I, I guess that we have a Christ narrative in a polytheistic world. It just kind of confuses the... Oh, I think it's fascinating. Story. Yeah. I, I think it's much more interesting than if they somehow had arranged it. So he represented all gods. I, I love the idea that Alan programmed Tron. And so Tron like looks to Alan as like his particular signature god. And he, he literally wears Alan's face. Uh, that little moment where like Walter turns to Dillinger and says, you know, uh, the programs that we create still have a bit of our spirit in them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Dillinger dismisses him as like, you know, I don't have time for religious discussion or whatever. Like even he recognizes that this is not a offhand or metaphorical thing, that it's meant as religion. I just I find the whole thing kind of hilariously naked. And yet I just daring at the same time. I mean, when Ram is dying, he's looking up <laughs> at Jeff Bridges' face. Yeah. Like he's literally seeing a god and he he has this just sort of wonder on his face as he dies. That is such a strange moment for a Disney movie, especially given Disney movies' deep-seated love of the fake death and take back. Mm. Uh, it's just there's so much weird drama in this film. And I, I kind of think it's both hilarious and touching. All right, you're convincing me that there's maybe more there than I originally registered, but I maintain that it is maybe not that elegantly deployed throughout the the film. Well, one of the reasons it's uh, inelegantly deployed is a lot of the performances here are kind of not the most nuanced. I guess, uh, Scott, you were making reference to that. You want to take this Well, I just think Jeff Bridges is really the only performer here who makes much of an impression i guess you could i think david warner is actually pretty decent as as ed dillinger but that's about it it's not a film i mean it's one of those situations where it's such an effects heavy film that any actor bridges included is going to get buried by it to some extent so that's a problem and to me like really the most resonant character in the film is the mcp is the master Mm -hmm. control program and i almost missed him in the middle of the movie because i really enjoyed that interplay between the mcp and and dillinger just because you know it's this (laughs) the computer is you know, it's a whole lot smarter. It keeps getting smarter. It keeps kind of consolidating power. I, I love that idea of that specific fear of what a computer could possibly do, that it's going to take what its creators have done to bring it to a certain point, and then it's, it's going to go way, way beyond that. I mean, you see that in 2001. You can see that as far up into, like, Her has that to an extent. But War Games, if you want to talk about a film from the period, has, has a computer that's going to take the nuclear ball and run with it. I, I find that a very fascinating thing and, and something that the film brings out really well at the beginning and I wish it kind of had more of it. I think it's interesting because like the film does have a fair amount of MCP but it's interacting with Sark who is 
also <laughs> played by Warner. So like mm-hmm. that sort of relationship transfers into the computer world, but it doesn't have the same effect as it does in the real world where there is a human computer split and it's a lot scarier mm-hmm. to see a computer basically overpowering a human rather than a computer overpowering another part of a computer. And Sark is just, a, I mean, he is a minion, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, and rather than, even though he is taking the, the master's visage, uh, or taking on Dillinger's visage, anyway, he, I think he, he's living in, in fear of the, the MCP rather than necessarily be, being his representative in the uh, virtual world. On some level, I just assumed that Sark was created by the MCP as some kind of subroutine and that he has the MCP's face because programs have the faces of the creators mm. and the MCP has Dillinger's face because he has the face of his creator and it's just sort of a tiered system. I think it's really interesting that this movie essentially has three villains that are all the same villain. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess we could get more into you know Christianity and kind of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost uh, trinity here, <laughs> except that these are the bad guys. But I also just I think it's really interesting that we have, you know, three very different power levels and levels of significance. I mean, you you, you talk about that scene where the MCP is talking to Dillinger. I, I just I think it's fascinating that the MCP's concern is breaking into the Pentagon, stealing its military programs and like further expanding in order to take over the world and run it more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And it can completely control Dillinger by saying, do you want me to release a small file saying that you stole some video games? <laughs> <laughs> like that's, that's how different the power levels between them are. And it makes the MCP, which could be just sort of a very cartoony villain into something a lot more powerful and malevolent because it has the ability to have that kind of impact in the real world. And it's just the the conversations between them are interesting in a way because they start so much like a man talking to a computer that has a few basic communication subroutines and very quickly devolve into a blackmailer talking to his victim and giving him orders. It's it's a really rapidly developing dynamic early in the film. Speaking of those like real world bookends, because, you know, we obviously end back in the real world. <laughs> I find it very quaint that the blackmail storyline, Flynn's quest to get proof that mm. uh, Dylan stole the games ends in like a dot matrix printout <laughs> yeah. like is that gonna hold up in a court of law like I, I, apparently in, in this world there, there it is it's, it's right it's, it's right. right there on the paper printer, black the, printer, and, the, the printer, printer says, says so right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah you think that maybe that gets sent to the press or something like that but no it's just it's just an internal memo of the of a high priority which is really how you get snared. And, uh, and it more or less says, these video games were written by me, signed Flynn. Yeah. Like, it's, <laughs> it does not seem like a particularly legal document. <laughs> it, that is kind of hilarious. There's also just a sense of de-escalation. Mm-hmm. You know, by the end of the movie, the story in t- inside the computer has taken on this, like, this grandiose, like, fantasy epic level. I mean, it feels like something that happens in Kroll or Conan the Barbarian. They face off and somebody has to die and there's, you know, lights and explosions and this the roaring angry computer and then the effect of that on the outside world is a piece of paper prints on the print. yeah. it's it's like the it's like the train fight in ant-man where you're seeing it all from their tiny perspective and then there's like a tiny little train that falls over yeah. and that's what it looks like to us what do you make of i believe the final line of uh, greetings programs when the new head of ncom 
Flynn arrives yeah. and says hello to Alan and Laura, who we haven't even talked about because that's how big of an impression she makes <laughs> on this movie. But he he greets them with greetings programs, which is what he says in the computer world the, to their that programs. He, that, that this experience he remembers. Well, yes. I mean, I, I think it's obvious that Flynn remembers his experience, but it seems like there's a presumption that... Alan and Laura also know what was happening inside the computer, even though they are users, not their programs. So it, mm. it just feels like there's an implication of a shared consciousness there wow. <laughs> that, that the rest of the film doesn't really bear out. I definitely didn't take it that way. I took it as uh, Flynn is a bit of a smartass with a, a pretty childish mm-hmm. sense of humor. Yes, that is a more obvious interpretation. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, the whole sequence up in his bedroom where they, they come to warn him that Dillinger's onto him and he he celebrates their arrival by taking off his the shirt, shirt yeah. <laughs> in order to specifically impress her and uh, kind of throw it in Alan's face, I think. Well, and his shirt was very sweaty. His shirt was sweaty. That was, that was like the first, I watched this with my boyfriend, and like the first thing he noticed when Flynn came on screen is like, he's sweating a lot. <laughs> so. I mean, those old, uh, those old stand-up consoles could give off some heat. Yeah. <laughs> and he's probably been playing that for a couple of hours. It to takes get a to, while to do that level. To get to all nines on the So maybe, on it, was the just, so maybe it was just courtesy and not a power move it, he was looking directly at her when he did it it was it was so clearly look at me remember this hey i'm half naked in my bedroom now i mean they both they both show visible discomfort when they're walking into his bedroom uh and there are a lot of like little touches like that in the film that i think are interesting especially given how simplistic most of the real world stuff is and how broadly it plays and just how how big those characters are I kind of love that Dillinger's just like, yeah, somebody's been breaking the mainframe. I'm just going to shut off everybody's work and <laughs> not explain it to them, not give them any other assignments. And then Alan comes schlepping into his office and then just sulks back out without, I mean, when you ask your boss, what am I supposed to do now? So they lose level seven access, but they go in through level six access? What's well, group seven and group, group six. Group seven. Okay. I, I think it's just a... Uh, like an org thing it's not like you know they they get much better access well you know to go back to the acting i think bridges is just someone who can't help but be interesting so so you get things like one small moment that i that made me laugh was when they were he had to literally sneak do some sneaking do you remember the, the way he it, was it when he like he's like behind a, a wall yes. and he kind of like he, he, no, he like, does i'm the, leaning away from the he, microphone to, to, no, uh, he, to ex- he actually to, runs <laughs> he kind of does a thing where he's trying where they're trying to tiptoe their way through yeah. an area in the building and he does it in this comic warner brothers cartoony yeah. type, of, type of way yeah, um, I, I don't know if it's the exact same moment you're talking about but i i also have a moment in my head that has a certain looney tune sensibility to it, where yeah. he like peeks out from behind a wall in a very like <laughs> like his whole body he slants out at a 45 degree angle then slants back in yeah i mean he does he kind of he's pretty much the only character who's given you any kind of indication to the audience that hey this is kind of fun you know maybe it's the skirt he's the only one who has a skirt he's sort of got a half toga (laughs) yeah yeah, his, like he, he, he gets to hide his bulge. Maybe, maybe like he's just more comfortable in his performance because he doesn't have that <laughs> jumpsuit bulge that there's all, a, everyone else does. Of, there's a lot of bulging in this. <laughs> also, a lot of butt definition. Uh, it, it, it's like, I mean, both it's both genders. animation. Which, by the more way... Like butt-lit animation. Uh, <laughs> we could definitely get into why the hell are computer programs gendered and why do they seem to have romance? Yeah, yeah. And, and why do they drink water? 
which I get that it's energy, but it's water. <laughs> it is water. And watching them, yeah. like, you know, suck it up while making, like, just delirious orgasm noises is kind of hilarious. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it felt like the scene where Augustus Gloop is, like, scooping mm. up chocolate in yeah. uh, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Water's not great with electronics, though. <laughs> That's a good point. They don't short themselves That's out. why it's energy. Not, right? so they just call it energy? It's all a damn oh, metaphor. Oh, you said they call it water. <laughs> no. <laughs> but uh, for me, the kind of the quintessential Jeff Bridges moment in this film is when he's playing his, the video game that he designed and he's winning at it, which of course he's winning at it. He knows all of the exploits. He knows all of the patterns. I wouldn't think that that would be exciting for him, but he is just so clearly gleeful and excited by having reached the end of this this game. And, you know, he's got a crowd of people around him. They're impressed with him. So presumably that's part of it. Like he's really actively into it. Like he's playing that game like it means something. And his delight in it is kind of infectious, even though it's not a real game and we're not familiar with it. Like we don't have any associations or emotional attachments to it. He's just projecting like joy and excitement. Mm -hmm. On something that he's almost certainly not looking at. Like it's not like there is an actual version of this game that he is playing in that moment. No, you know, point. it's all performance based. Acting. Yes. You know, this movie was uh, was a really big box office flop at the time. I haven't confirmed this, but I read at one point that Disney didn't do another live action movie for 10 years as a result of the uh, lack of success of Tron. So I'm wondering, I mean, at the time, there were like a few articles to the effect of, you know, people don't like these newfangled computer things and <laughs> they don't want movies about them and they don't want movies made with them. Do you think that was it or was this movie just a weird thing that was hard to swallow? I think it's probably more the latter combined with maybe a certain generational divide that maybe helps explain its subsequent elevation to a, a cult film, mm -hmm. I guess. Setting aside all the sort of semi-confusing fake computer jargon and the religious overtones, like this does play for me more like a kid's movie than anything, just in terms of the simplicity of the basic story and sort of the basic silliness slash like awesomeness of a lot of the game playing like it just I, I don't know it feels like a kid's movie to me but it has all these elements that make it maybe not accessible to young kids but then like I feel the generation that saw this movie in the theaters and then like just kind of grew up with this technology as the technology evolved they just maybe felt more attuned to it and keyed into it than adults at the time maybe did film critics or box office prognosticators did because they were later in their lives and maybe the technology hadn't insinuated itself into their consciousness at the level it had or would for younger viewers i'm sure vhs helped a great deal to this movie uh, an audience i mean that, that kind of what is what happens with cult films they kind of get rediscovered later and in this in tron as we've discussed has a lot of curious aspects that are not necessarily commercial uh, in nature but are worth chewing over both the themes of the film and then and then also the look of the film which is quite advanced and worth r returning to and i also think it just isn't clear enough i mean it, it is if it's going to be a kids movie or it was supposed to function like one mm -hmm. then it needs to be both clear as as a piece of storytelling and you know, i think it may be indulges in quite a bit of technical language that you know is hard to understand for but also like some not 
really real technical <laughs> language or i mean yeah. i mean or D-res. it's got its own vocabulary yeah for sure yeah vocabulary specific to this movie that is like sounds close enough to actual computer terminology but is derezzing uh is that a trans-specific term i don't know if uh if it originated that idea or not that's a really good question i certainly uh, it popularized it and uh metaphorized it because it was definitely not a term meaning to die yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's just it it kind of fascinates me because um I mean according to like the director's sort of oral history of making this film Disney was very hands off about the whole thing and and not very interested in it as a project until it was completed and then studio execs saw it and they thought they had the next Star Wars on their hand. Mm. They they did a full press blitz for it um and they basically said, you know, we've we've got a huge hit, people are going to love this uh and they they threw themselves into it. So it wasn't like a discarded film. It was just a film that didn't capture attention. Do you have an idea how the ancillary products of the film performed because Tron existed also as a video game where you could play all of these games that you were seeing in the movie and I I, mean, I I recall it being being around and probably playing with it when I was a kid maybe that kind of helped uh, I don't know when all that sort of came about but I would think that that would, would have helped with the long term life of the of the film right it might have helped with the long term life it definitely didn't help with the short term life because this was right before uh, the giant video game crash that basically killed Atari for a long time and, and resulted in a, an entire landfill full of uh, E.T. Yeah. cartridges yeah. one of the other things the director has said is you know if they if they hadn't been able to get this funding if they tried to get the process started up even a year or two later, nobody would have wanted the film because the societal attitude was, well, video games were a fun fad, but they're over and nobody's ever going to care about those things again. Mm. You know, it was just a downturn in the market and it eventually turned back around. But for a while, people were like, oh, well, Pac-Man fever is over. Therefore, video games are over. So, like, I, I certainly I don't think that it helped that much at the time. But I, I guess I don't really know that much about the merch or like the game when the game came along. According to some very cursory Googling around, it appears that the video game grossed more than the film in its in its release. 800 arcade cabinets were sold by 1982. The book The Naked Computer reported that Tron made 45 million by 1983. That's a lot of quarters. <laughs> yeah, that was a nice, that's a kind of a cool aspect of the movie too. When they park the car and decide not to pay for parking, so they don't have quarters left over for for playing video games. <laughs> What a, what a strange joke. Like, you're not saving any quarters when you get that, you know, $50 traffic ticket. Take your chances. I guess so. Yeah. So I guess sort of to close, Ready Player One comes out of the author, Ernest Klein having a huge obsession with 80s pop culture. And this film was one of a lot of films that he cited, that he borrowed heavily from, that inspired him. And you look back on a lot of the things that, that fascinate him, like that come up in his stand-up comedy and both of the books that he's written in every time he, he does any sort of public lecture. And there are all of these movies like War Games and The Last Starfighter and Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Thinking about like why he seized on these things and why today in particular it just seems like they have such an elevated 
status in the culture. Like 80s music and, and 80s film, people hang on to even when those things are not the residue of their own childhood. And I'm just wondering, is, is there anything that you can point to about 80s films that makes them either unified in a way that would create this kind of like dedicated geek culture or different from the films of other decades? Uh, well, I would say two things. Uh, one, it, I think it depends on when you grow up. I was assuming Ernest Klein is a middle-aged man. Yeah, I mean, he's about the right age where this was the stuff of so his childhood. Stuff he, so, so that plays, I think, a pretty key factor. Um, and the other thing, you mentioned titles, and we'll get into this with Ready Player One. You mentioned titles like The Last Starfighter, Star Wars, War Games. They engage with a fantasy that video game players especially have, which is that these fairly useless skills that they've acquired by playing hours and hours of video games can be applied in some heroic fashion in stopping some tyranny from overtaking the universe. And so, you know, I mean, The Last Starfighter is literally about a an arcade game that is, in fact, a recruitment tool for a starfighter to engage in combat in space. So I think there's an appeal there it's just basic to people who play games who play video games i mean i think you could certainly say that about war games which is about a nerd that knows a lot about computers and that enables him to save the world from nuclear holocaust but if you look at some of the other signifiers like star wars or raiders or back to the future back to the future uh ghostbusters like none of them have that same cachet to them they're all about outcasts that save the world in some way that is a good point. And they're all about white dudes. See, that's that's sort of like I don't want to overplay that thought, but it does seem to me like they're all not it's not just specifically that they're about white dudes, but that they all have kind of a like a broy humor to them. They all have a kind of hip shot, smirky smiley, like you know, Indiana Jones gets very serious, but he also rolls his eyes at a guy attacking him with a sword and uh, shoots the guy. You know, there's like that particular kind of humor, the Bill Murray and Ghostbusters humor, mm-hmm. seems to run through a lot of these films in a way that makes it kind of fun and cool to save the world, you know, to be on Han Solo rather than Obi-Wan Kenobi and be kind of cool and hip and with it, even when you're doing kind of nerdy things. And I'm wondering if that's part of it. I think it definitely is. And we will have a lot more opportunity to discuss that in part two. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Well, that's fair. There's going to be so much to say about how these two films speak to each other because it's not just on a comparison level. It's it's Ernest Cline taking what he loves from Tron and turning it into a whole new movie. We'll, we'll talk about that in part two. In the meantime, though, we should move on to feedback. We'll be right back to talk about some letters we've gotten about recent episodes. time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We still have quite a few letters in the hopper about our pair-up of Stalker and Annihilation, uh, but here's a letter about a slightly different pair-up. Genevieve? This one comes from Sweden, from a listener in the Evolutionary Biology Center at Uppsala University. You'll see why that's relevant shortly. He says... During your discussion of Annihilation, when Tasha said the creators of The Shimmer don't really want anything, it made me think of The Girl with All the Gifts, which I've seen thanks to Tasha's earlier Your Next Picture Show recommendation. Specifically, it seems to me both movies have a similar long-term outlook. The death of most or all of the human race in a world no longer fit for normal humans. Girl with All the Gifts shows us this future, and Annihilation implies it might be just as inevitable. 
Evolutionary biologists call this hard selection. A strong selective force is imposed, and individuals that survive carry some sort of genetic variation that allows them to survive the new environmental conditions, like the resistant children and gifts. The rest of the population dies, except perhaps for very few very lucky ones. Even the individuals with genetic variation that favors survival are unlikely to be sitting pretty. Because the environment has changed, survivors do not live under familiar conditions. In most realistic cases, the conditions are unlikely to be simply a Mad Max, the road world of scarcity and cruelty. Instead, it is more likely that the new conditions change the near and far-term evolutionary trajectory of the great ape Homo sapiens, along with many other species. These movies say that the could we and should we questions that motivate so many apocalyptic movies may be beside the point. As a biologist, I can appreciate this intellectually, but it honestly frightens me that there are so many probable futures in which we may not end up with a say either way. Well, now I'm frightened too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite frightened because I I do think that could we and should we is still an issue. It's just an issue that's taken more off screen and less actually debated among the characters than it used to be because I think there's a little more of an attitude of you know, if we are doomed, it's it's naturally assumed to be our fault. It's naturally be assumed to be because of choices we made, because we're a warlike species, because we're tribalistic, uh, because we're short-sighted, because we pollute the environment, because we fight wars that we don't need to fight, because we're selfish and greedy. Like, I think there are a lot of assumptions baked into a lot of these dystopian stories or it, like end-of-the-world future stories where they're kind of punishment dramas for the human race. Mm -hmm. And it's not that they're taking it for granted that we're all going to die so much as they're exploring what it's going to look like if we continue the path that we're on. I think that there is still a, like, a can we and should we in there? It just sort of <laughs> tragically assumes that we've heard those questions a thousand times before and still haven't come up with good answers for them. And with the awareness that it could all be moot, which I guess is the maybe not frightening part, but the part that kind of catches you off guard. The idea that the central question, you know, we've been wrestling with or whatever just may not even matter in the end. Like, I think that is more what this letter is getting at in terms of it being frightening, just because it kind of speaks to an innate fear that we all have around death and that like we don't know how or when it is going to come. There's only so hard you can think about it, plan for it, do things to combat it. You know, in the end, it can completely surprise you. I think there's also just an interesting thing about those two films in relationship to each other, Annihilation and Girl with All the Gifts, in that like the death of the the assumed death of the human race is maybe considered a tragic thing, but both of those films still end in a way that could be considered upbeat. Mm -hmm. And in part, that's just because you've been invited to spend both of those films empathizing to some degree with, well, in one case, empathizing with a woman who, by the end, she may be very changed. She may be partially alien. Uh, I guess the details are uncertain, but she's still herself and you're still meant to identify mm -hmm. with her and to care about her reunion with her husband. With Girl With All The Gifts, you're definitely invited to empathize with kind of the, the survival, the group that does survive and maybe see this as a sad thing for humanity, but a happy thing for her because a world has been created where she can survive and maybe make a better world you know, for herself and her kind. So I, I think these films are maybe identifying with the alien and the outsider in a way that's very deliberate, 
concentrating not so much on humanity is terrible and needs to die or humanity is doomed and going to die as to say, you know, life continues. Life life finds a way to be all Jurassic World about it. Jurassic World. You're going to cite Jurassic World before Jurassic Park. Should I? <laughs> Should I? I mean, you know, worlds are bigger than parks. Worlds contain we have parks. To, we have to stay. We, we can't just stay stuck in the past. You know, we, we're in the 21st century now. And uh, those that, dinosaurs that move, are much bigger. The movie for us is Jurassic World. Um, Jurassic this is all making me down. regret that I haven't seen Girl with All the Gifts yet. You should. It's I really know. good. That's what I hear. Mm, I'm going to take that. I'll walk that back a little. You should. It's a very interesting movie. Okay. So this letter is a little more about Annihilation's specific plot points, and it gets a little spoilery. So if you haven't seen that yet, you can consider this a warning. You might want to skip ahead. Scott, you want to take this one? Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. See, I'm, I'm all glitchy. Okay. Uh, so maybe I should leave that until we get back into Ready Player One and the second part of this conversation. A listener named Tim wants to address two things. One. You danced up to the line with this one by mentioning the women's deaths possibly as a result of their flaws before rejecting it. My take, however, was the Aerie and the Shimmer acted as a kind of monkey's paw for each of their subconscious desires. Shepard wanted to be connected with someone, particularly her daughter, and she ends up dead. And he has the daughter part in uh, parentheses there. And connected with the mimic bear, even though it is in her moment of terror. Thorinson wants to prove herself a hero once more to put her addict past in the rear view, and she quote-unquote gets to be by saving the remaining team members from the bear. Raddick wants a release from her emotional pain, which she is granted by becoming part of nature. Ventress wants to quote-unquote know the shimmer, which she gets to even though that knowledge destroys her. Last but not least, Lena wants to have her marriage back, but literally cannot if she remains the same person. So the shimmer changes her to a literally different person or creature, I suppose. Two, the infinity tattoo. Obviously, it hints at the group being mixed up within the shimmer, including being mixed up with each other. However, it also may be an indication that the shimmer has quote-unquote fixed Lena's DNA. In one of the flashbacks, she explains to Kane that cell death is an accident, a mistake of biology. Our cells should continually change but shouldn't die. Perhaps the shimmer fixed it in her. This also might explain why it bursts when she destroys the lighthouse. Having quote-unquote fixed her, the shimmer has done what it set out to do and releases her, healing Cain at the same time to be the first mating pair to spread this new version of humanity cured of its literally fatal flaw. I'm not sure that I buy the infinity tattoo specifically as an indication that her DNA has been fixed. I do like the idea of the shimmer self-destructing because it's accomplished what it needs to accomplish, that it's infected her enough mm. to release her back into the world and to basically put them in a, a position where they can spread it. Alice Garland has, has kind of specifically said that the ending is in part about how humanity carries around this self-destructive urge and she's passed it on to the shimmer. So the shimmer self-destructs. <laughs> um, okay. So, all right. So we're talking about the reverse of what he, they pass on to the shimmer, not the other way around. Exactly. But I mean, given that they're in an environment where everything gets mixed up with everything else, both of those things can be true. She can have picked up something from the shimmer. The shimmer can have picked up something from her. It's just that the, if the shimmer is a more positive thing, then she picks up something that enables her to function in the world. The Shimmer picks up something that keeps it from functioning in the world. And then she moves on, and, and presumably if the Shimmer has done its work, then, then it has, it's like an Adam and Eve type of situation, where now this couple is now going to 
produce a, a different shimmer-approved version of uh, <laughs> what of what reality is going to be from uh, from then on. I think that's what Tim's positing. As I said in the in that podcast, I just don't feel like we have enough information to tell what it is that we're seeing to to get any sense of what this movie wants the future to look like. I think it's an exciting possibility, though. Like More than any of the many interpretations of the ending I've read, the idea of Lena and Kane as an Adam and Eve for a new shimmer-centric universe mm-hmm. is strikes me as like, oh, that could be really cool. It's a question that the sequel, we'll have to wait for the sequel <laughs> right? to answer. Yeah. I mean, I'm up for any interpretation that gives us a way to move forward with this narrative beyond that pregnant moment that, to me just says so little. I I was just, I was so frustrated with that ending because of the lack of of data that we could use to push us in any interesting direction. So I'm all for this interpretation just because it gives me like a possibility. Yeah, yeah. Look at all the great feedback that uh, open ending has has invited. <laughs> I want to back up a little and look at point one. I have also kind of been a sucker for any interpretation that that breaks down one by one, like what the meanings of of the the women's deaths are. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think I was the one in the uh, in the episode that kind of brought up the idea uh, that there is like is a one to one correlation here, and like I I didn't want to tease it out too much in the moment, but we've since gotten multiple letters that have teased out that mm-hmm. moment, one of which we read in the last episode, which took a different view of, of what was happening with those pairings. But uh, so if you haven't listened to the Diabolique episode, uh, the feedback section there has a, another interesting interpretation of that. But this one also, as with that one, like it, it makes sense, like so much of this movie you can graft a lot of different interpretations onto it. It's a little bit of a Rorschach blob, but mm. I mean, I love that people are engaging with it on this level, that people are finding ways to interpret it. And I, like, I love that it's grabbed people's imagination so much. I was really afraid that this movie would just kind of disappear, but it, it's ended up with a longer shelf life than yeah. I would have thought. Mm. Well, that wraps up our feedback for this episode. We always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts, their recommendations, their interpretations of Annihilation, and their best imitation of the bits from Tron. You cannot <laughs> outdo scott in this matter but you can feel free to call in anyway to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net we may feature your response on a future episode or post it on facebook for discussion That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Ready Player One and talk about its version of the world of video games and how it also reflects some contemporary fears about gaming, computers, and virtual reality. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then... End of line. Modern times driving you insane. Explanation not to explain. We understand it in the rain. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a loose. Don't bump it down.